Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. We're in a sermon series about the names attributed to Jesus throughout the New Testament, some of which Jesus uses to describe himself and some of which others use to describe Jesus. But in both cases, we know that a name is given to illuminate something about Jesus, right? A name, as we all know, is indicative of the person that it references. Names tell us something about the person to which they belong. Now, some names are given at birth from parents to children. And those names might actually tell you more about the parents than about the children, but in God's providence, maybe it will tell you something about the child. But some names are earned by the things that you do. For instance, if you go to med school, you become a physician. The title doctor gets added to your name. That's a name that you earn. And some names are adopted, taken on by a person themselves. Like when a child gets adopted into a family, he takes on the name of the family into which he's adopted. Or in our culture, if a woman gets married, she traditionally takes on the name of her husband's family. And I think about a Jewish friend of mine who, as an adult, became a Christian. Um, and as he grew in his faith, he decided that he wanted to move to Israel to become a Christian missionary to the Jewish nation as people. And his whole life, he had gone by a Western name, um, but when he decided to make the move to Israel, he adopted his Jewish family name that was given to him at birth because he wanted to identify more closely with his Jewish heritage. So he and his family began to call him by his Jewish name because it had some history. It had some heritage behind it, which was useful in his new context. Now, in today's passage, we see two names that Jesus uses for himself, Son of God and Son of Man. Now, if you're anything like me, you probably have some context for understanding the name Son of God. After all, it is the way that we refer to Jesus most often. Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the name has a lot of church history behind it. We generally understand what it means, I think. And for believers, we use it to indicate Jesus' divinity, his relationship with his Father. 
And this name, as we'll see in a few minutes, is crucial to the meaning of our passage today. But the other name here, the Son of Man, seems just as important in this passage. But if you're anything like me, that name doesn't immediately conjure up a lot of meaning. In church services, we don't usually refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. And the title Son of Man doesn't really have any cultural significance that I know of in our time. Now, if you were to read a theology textbook, you might see something like the dual title of the Son of God and Son of Man indicates Jesus' divine and his human natures. And that's true, yes. But it doesn't really help us to understand what this name means. Because, and I don't know if you know this, but the Bible is not a textbook. It's not like you can read it like a mathematics book to find proofs or a formula to help make a theological argument. It just doesn't work that way. No, if you see something written in Holy Scripture, you can go ahead and take it for granted that it has a deep history behind it. Because these texts that we call the Bible came out of a long, long oral tradition that was rooted deeply in Jewish religion, spirituality, and history. So, what's up with this name, Son of Man? And furthermore, why do I say that it is essential in order for us to know uh, the good news about Jesus? Well, it might be interesting for you to know, first of all, that while we refer to Jesus as Son of God, most often, Jesus refers to himself, most often, as Son of Man. In fact, according to the theologian Thomas Oden, the title Son of Man is found in all four Gospels repeatedly, and from Jesus' own lips 65 times, more than any other name that he calls himself. Son of Man appears to have been utilized almost exclusively by Jesus himself. And the textual evidence implies that this was the title that Jesus himself used when he was actually speaking these words. It wasn't one that someone attributed later. Son of Man is what Jesus calls himself most often. And in order to understand why, we have to understand something of the Jewish scripture and history. Because Jesus is adopting for himself this name that has a rich Old Testament history behind it. The title Son of Man occurs 107 times in the Hebrew scriptures. And Jesus and his followers would have been well acquainted with the many meanings bound up in this title. They would have known the references to the Son of Man in their scripture. And the title would have conjured up a lot of images in their minds and meanings for them as Jesus 
used it to refer to himself and his ministry. But probably most well-known by Jesus' followers would be the account of the four beasts and the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. So, I don't know if you're familiar with this story. But if you're not, you're in luck. Because we're going to take a look at it. Because we need to get some perspective on this name that Jesus adopted in order to find out why it is essential for understanding the gospel. So if you have your Bible, let's look back at Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. So just to give you a little bit of background, if you don't know anything about Daniel, he's a prophet, yes, um, but he's also a uh, seer. He receives visions from God um, in his waking life and in his sleep, Um, and that's really his primary vocation. He receives visions from the Lord, and he's able to interpret them. So starting in verse 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So Daniel is asleep, has a dream that he perceives as a vision from God, wakes up and writes it down. Now I want your holy imagination to paint this scene for you as Daniel describes it. So I invite you, just... Listen to the words and allow your mind to paint the picture. And I promise there's no right way or wrong way to imagine it. Just let the Holy Spirit guide your imagination as you hear these words. So picking back up in verse 2. Daniel said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, and they were different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand upon two feet, like a man. And the mind of man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, was like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and lo, another beast, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrible and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with its feet. It was different 
from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the root. And behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking boastful things. Now, there is a lot of imagery there. And there's a lot of ways to interpret these things. And in fact, Daniel does give an interpretation later in this chapter. But for today, we're not really concerned with the interpretation of his vision. Rather, I simply want to point out for you what the text says about the beasts and what they're like. And as best we can tell what the beasts represent. First, we see that these beasts arise from up out of the ocean. The four winds of heaven were stirring the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea. So winds from every direction, north, south, east, and west, were blowing on the ocean. And we all know what that does, right? It creates storms. Creates huge waves, violence. For the ancient Jews, the oceans represented chaos. They were not a seafaring people, needless to say, and they feared the open oceans. So the sea came for them to represent disorder over against order that God had instated in creation. If in creation God separated the water from the land and put order between them, the open water of the ocean represented a kind of pre-creation chaos, void of God's grace and orderly shalom. This, by the way, is one reason why Jesus calming the storms on the Sea of Galilee is such a powerful image. He presides even over the chaos of the sinful world. But that's another sermon. So the beasts rise up out of this chaotic, violent, stormy ocean and reveal themselves to Daniel as he looks. Now, I don't know how large of a beast... You imagined, as I read these words, that I imagine these beasts are enormous. Reason being, how big does a beast need to be in order to stand up out of the ocean? We're talking hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand feet high. You know, when I was a kid, I loved to watch uh, the old Japanese Godzilla movies. Y'all ever watch those? If I'm honest, that's where my mind goes when I read this. See Godzilla lifting up out of the ocean. Now, granted, those movies, special effects were kind of terrible, but... And I heard there's new Godzilla movies. And I'm sure they're really awesome, but I haven't seen them, so... Anyway, the point is, these beasts are huge. And they are very, very strange and awful looking. One looks like a lion with eagle's wings but the wings get ripped off. 
One looks like a giant bear with ribs and flesh in its mouth. And one looks like a leopard with four wings and four presumably leopard heads. And the fourth beast has giant iron teeth and ten horns. Now, it might sound a little weird or funny to read these descriptions out. But just for a minute, imagine what it would be like to be Daniel. Maybe standing on the beach, watching these thousand-foot-high beasts emerge out of the ocean. Taller than the tallest skyscraper that you've probably ever seen. That would be a terrifying sight. But as terrible and as strange as these beasts appear, the most interesting and bizarre part of the whole vision is that some of the beasts are given human qualities. The first beast is said to stand on two feet like a man. And in fact, the mind of man was given to it. And the fourth beast beast after his three horns were ripped out and the smaller horn appears it has eyes and a mouth like that of a person and it begins to speak the text says it speaks boastful things so just to recap we've got four giant beasts that have risen out of the chaos of the ocean having dominion over the earth and even dominating and destroying eating flesh and smashing with teeth and foot all of God's good creation. The, great, uh, the greatest of the beasts, the fourth beast, is looking at all of this with a man's eyes. And he's boasting of their work with a man's mouth. Let's pick up in verse 9 to see what happens. And as I looked, thrones were placed... And one that was ancient of days took his seat. His raiment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth from before him. And a thousand thousands served and worshipped him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. This is a judgment scene. And the one that is ancient of days is the judge who is worshipped by the people that are gathered in front of him. But not all of them. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to infer from the text that this person called the Ancient of Days represents God, Yahweh. After all, Daniel is a Jew, and who do the Jews worship? Yahweh. For the Jews, who is the one that passes ultimate judgment? Yahweh. The name Ancient of Days, Atik Yom, in Hebrew, is only, only appears three times in the whole Bible. And all three occurrences happen here in Daniel 7. I think this is a symbolic way to characterize Yahweh, the judge and God 
of 10,000 times 10,000, as the text says. So Yahweh comes in on his fiery throne, sits before the people and the beasts, and opens his book to judge. Let's keep reading. I looked then because of the sound of the boastful words which were coming from the horn. And as I looked, the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives are prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So the most terrible beast is slain before the people and the dominion over the earth is taken away from the other beasts and is given to one that is said to be like a son of man who comes with the clouds of heaven before the ancient of days. Imagine what this would have looked like to Daniel in his vision. Four beasts, each thousands of feet tall, one slain and burned, and the other three made to bow down. And then a man comes, and all authority is given to him. How tall is a man? Between five and seven feet, generally speaking? What would it have looked like to see a little, comparatively little man come into the midst of these great beasts and have them bowed down and slain before him? How would it have appeared for this relatively small contender to come in and claim the kingdom? It might have been a little bit unexpected for Daniel. And then, even more unexpected, the text says that the people of all nations and languages would worship him forever and his kingdom would never pass away. Now, I realize that doesn't have a lot of impact on us, but this is downright scandalous, even heresy. How many gods do the Jews worship? One, Yahweh. What Daniel sees here is Yahweh giving authority to the Son of Man. And the people of every nation of the world bowing down to worship Him. 
Daniel would not have known what to do with that information. And it's probably why he says at the end of this chapter, in verse 28, As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me, and my face was pale with fear. But I kept these things to myself. Here's the crucial point from Daniel's vision. And you must get this in order to understand the good news of Jesus Christ. Authority and dominion is taken away from the terrible beastly rulers of the world and given to a humane, human ruler. But a human ruler that can preside over an eternal kingdom. An eternal human person. This is the Son of Man, the eternal ruler who reigns justly with authority given to him by Yahweh. Does that sound like anybody we know? Jesus doesn't merely adopt this name for himself like my friend who moved to Israel. No, Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man 65 times because he has always been the Son of Man. Jesus Christ doesn't assume the role of Son of Man. Jesus fulfills Daniel's vision, and Daniel never even got to see it. It was Jesus that Daniel saw coming with the clouds of heaven to receive all authority before the Ancient of Days. It is Jesus who takes the dominion away from the beasts who dominate the world, and he reclaims it for himself. This is what it means for Jesus to call himself the Son of Man. He is the good, humane ruler that dethrones the evil beastly rulers that emerge from the chaos of a fallen sinful world. So knowing that, let's look back at our verse for today, John chapter 5, and see the good news that this passage proclaims. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, The hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Two names, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Both are absolutely essential to this gospel message. Jesus truly is the Son of God that he claims to be. We see earlier in this chapter, in verse 18, that this is the reason that the Jewish authorities are trying to kill him, because he was calling God his Father and making himself equal with God. Heresy, according to the Jewish authorities. But Jesus must be God. 
or he cannot be our Savior. As Daniel's vision says, the Son of Man who claims the kingdom of God is an everlasting ruler whose reign will never, ever end. What kind of person can live forever? Only a God person. He must be eternal. Jesus must be God and must be eternal in order to fulfill his vocation. If Jesus is not the Son of God, there is no gospel. And it is only in being God himself that Jesus can give life to those who put their trust in him. Verse 26 makes this very clear. Just as the Father has life in himself, because he is the center from which all creation comes forth, Jesus also has that life-giving power to bring life to those dead who hear his voice, because all creation was created through Jesus. All was made through him, and all is returning to him. There is nothing that was made in this world that is not his. And he is claiming resurrection life for all that has been destroyed by death. Now I think this passage tells us about two separate resurrections. It tells us of the coming resurrection at the end of times. When all will be raised from the dead to stand and face God. But it's also telling us that Jesus' life-giving power will call to life the dead among the living, now in this life. Jesus' spirit resurrects the dead things in our lives, brothers and sisters. He redeems even what has been corrupted and uses all of your life for the sake of his glory. It has been said that nothing in your life will be wasted when it comes to eternal glory. And I think that's true. God is in the business of resurrecting dead spirits, dead relationships, dead energy, Dead willpower, dead jobs, dead families. He's able to redeem all of you. And all means all, brothers and sisters. Your broken relationships, your failed marriage, your broken sexuality, your suicidal thoughts, your aches and pains, your addiction, your mental illness, your feeble attempts to be a good friend, a good parent, a good Christian, all will be redeemed in time as Jesus' spirit works life in your mind and body. I know that in the darkest moments, 
It feels impossible. But anything that has fallen and broken in the shock waves of sin in your life will be raised to life by the power that is at work in you by the Spirit of Christ. How? Because He is the Son of God. He is all-powerful. He's able to work life in you. Yes, even you. Now lastly, our passage tells us that the Father has given Jesus authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Because He is the Son of Man. That, brothers and sisters, is the good news. We see that the reason Jesus has the authority to pass judgment is because He is a humane God. Unlike the four beastly rulers. And because he is a humane God, his judgments are just and right. There is no inhumanity in him. Because he is the perfect human being. There is no evil in him. Because he is perfectly good. Any judgment he makes is righteous. Because, because he is the Son of Man. And he will not rule as the beasts rule. He will not, he will rule in perfection, in humane righteousness that we see put on display throughout his life and in the life of his faithful followers. So you might ask, how is the humane ruler different than the beastly ruler? And there are many, many ways. The character of Christ as we see him in the Gospels is the testament to how the Son of Man will rule his kingdom righteously. The Beatitudes in Matthew 5. The fruits of the Spirit that Paul shows us in Galatians 5. These are good places for you to start if you want to see his character fleshed out. But to close us for today, I want to read one story that I think exemplifies the character of Jesus in his righteous judgment. Let's look just a few pages away to the right of our passage in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. Early in the morning, Jesus came to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst of them, they said to Jesus, teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses tells us to stone her. 
But what do you say about her? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away. One by one, beginning with the eldest. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus looked up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the touchstone for God's humane judgment. Forgiveness is the heart of God's character. Forgiveness is the righteous judgment that Jesus pronounces all of those over all of those who come to him. Forgiveness is the way of the Son of Man. The beastly rulers of this world will not forgive. But Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God, is eager to forgive all of those who place their faith in him. The sobering fact, brothers and sisters, is that there will be a judgment day. And Jesus tells us that not all will see salvation. There will be those who are condemned to eternal death, to hell. But those who suffer judgment won't be condemned because they weren't good enough. If they are condemned, it will be because they chose to put their faith in the beastly rulers of this world. And in doing so, they choose to suffer the fate of the beasts. The choice we have is to choose faith in Christ instead of faith in the beastly ruler. Because Christ is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our hope. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to choose faith in Christ. It is tempting. It is tempting to put our faith in the beastly rulers of this world. Because that loyalty often comes with power and prestige, wealth, riches, and influence. 
but it will come with the greatest cost of all. The cost of missing out on the true, eternal, joyful, creative life forever with Jesus in God's everlasting kingdom. We must never forget who we are, brothers and sisters. We are all thieves hanging on the cross next to Jesus. And our choice is to either be the thief that mocks Jesus, berates him, and denies him. That thief places his faith in the beastly rulers until his final breath. And he shares their eternal fate. But we can choose to be the thief who looks up into the face of the Savior and asks that simple, profound question that echoes through the ages even unto today. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Will you remember me? And even as you ask that question, you know the answer. Today, my son, my daughter, you will be with me in paradise. Look into the face of Jesus and ask the question. He is faithful to receive you. And forgiveness is always, always on his lips. Bless you in the name of Christ. Amen.